solving it on your own. Amen. Thank you, choir. Well, as we've been making our way through Philippians, I hope that all of you can hear and sing along with that song, praising the Lamb of God, our Lord. I don't know if you caught it in one of the songs, but if you were with us two weeks ago, uh, we talked about the Hebrew people that wouldn't say the name Yahweh, so it was replaced with Adonai. Uh, And if you had replaced that in the song we just sang, we would have been singing Yahweh, our Adonai, God with us, our God, our King, and our Lord. Well, this morning, I think we're going to have some fun. And I think if I'm honest with myself, or actually, I have been honest with myself, so this has been a really hard message to prepare, and you'll see why very soon. But for the rest of you, I suspect that somewhere in this message, it will be very personal. Because if you can't relate to the text this morning, you may not be able to relate to anything else in the Bible. You know why? Because we're going to talk about ourselves. And more likely than not, at one time or another, we have put some thought into ourselves over putting thought and bringing glory to God and following Jesus Christ. I certainly have. I did it this morning. (laughs) So I was already off to a rough start. But remember, we've been making our way through Philippians chapter 2, and we were told that we should have this attitude of making sure that we are comfortable, we are happy, and everything is easy, right? No, No, okay, somebody's paying attention. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good start. We're already doing better today. No, it tells us that our attitude should be that the same of Christ Jesus, who in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, humbling himself to the point of death, even being cursed by God by going to death on a cross. Isn't that amazing? We're invited to a life of humility. And I've been thinking a lot about humility as, as this morning we turn our attention to what I've entitled a relational apologetic. In other words, if we're going to live out Christ is Lord of every ounce of our life, what might that look like? And I've, been, I've just recently started a new book. To me, it's a new book by David Brooks. He is not a Christian, uh, but he's a New York Times uh, author that uh, I've been, uh, over the years I've appreciated his perspective on some things. And he wrote a book called The Road to Character. I thought, hmm, wonder what the world thinks about character. And so I bought the book, uh, and this is how the book starts. See if you can relate. On Sunday evenings, my local NPR, National Public Radio in in America, station rebroadcasts old radio programs. A few years ago, I was driving home and heard a program called Command Performance, which was a variety show that went out to the troops during World War II. The episode I happened to hear was broadcast the day after VJ Day on August 15th, 1945. The episode featured some of the era's biggest celebrities. Some of you may recognize these names. Some of you may not. Just look in your history books. Frank Sinatra, Marlene Dietrich, Cary Grant, Betty Davis, and many others. But the most striking feature of the show was its tone of self-effacement and humility. The Allies had just completed one of the noblest military victories in human history. And yet there was no chest beating. Nobody was erecting triumphal arches. Well, it looks like this is it, the host Bing Crosby stated. What can you say at a time like this? You can't throw your skimmer in the air. That's for run-of-the-mill holidays. 
I guess all anybody can do is thank God it's over. The mezzo-soprano Rise Stevens came on and sang a solemn version of Ave Maria. And then Crosby came back on to summarize the mood. Today, though, our deep down feeling is one of humility. That sentiment was repeated throughout the entire broadcast. The actor Burgess Meredith read a passage written by Ernie Pyle, the war correspondent. Pyle had been killed just a few months before, but he'd written an article anticipating what victory would mean. We won this war because our men are brave and because of many other things, because of Russia, England, and China, and the passage of time and the gift of nature's materials. We did not win it because destiny created us better than other people. I hope that in victory, we are more grateful than proud. The show mirrored the reaction of the nation at large. There were rapturous celebrations, certainly. Sailors in San Francisco commandeered cable cars and looted liquor stores. The streets of New York's garment district were five inches deep in confetti, but the mood was divided. Joy gave way to solemnity and self-doubt. This was in part because the war had been such an epical event. It had produced such rivers of blood that individual, individuals felt small in comparison. There was also the manner in which the war in the Pacific had ended with the atomic bomb. People around the world had just seen the savagery human beings are capable of. Now here was a weapon that could make that savagery apocalyptic. The knowledge of victory was as charged with sorrow and doubt as with joy and gratitude, James Agee wrote in an editorial for Time magazine. But the modest tone of command performance wasn't just a matter of mood or style. The people on that broadcast had been part of one of the most historic victories ever known. But they didn't go around telling themselves how great they were. They didn't print up bumper stickers commemorating their own awesomeness. Their first instinct was to remind themselves they were not morally superior to anyone else. Their collective impulse was to warn themselves against pride and self-glorification. They intuitively resisted the natural human tendency toward excessive self-love. I arrived home before the program was over and listened to that radio show in my driveway for a time. Then I went inside and turned on an American football game. A quarterback threw a short pass to a wide receiver, which is not a very big deal, who was tackled almost immediately for a two-yard, two-meter gain. The defensive player did what all professional athletes do these days in moments of personal accomplishment. He did a self-puffing victory dance as the camera lingered. It occurred to me that I had just watched more self-celebration after a two-yard gain in an American football game than I heard after the United States had been a part of winning World War II. This little contrast set off a chain of thoughts in my mind. It occurred to me that this might shift, this shift might symbolize a culture change, a shift from a culture of self-effacement that says nobody's better than me, but I'm no better than anyone else, to a culture of self-promotion that says, recognize my accomplishments, I'm pretty special. That contrast, while nothing much in itself, was like a doorway into the different ways it is possible to live in this world. And for the rest of the book, uh, Brooks will go on to consider 
how the idea of character in our world has changed compared with 50 years ago, compared with hundreds of years ago, compared with history throughout. Let's bring it forward. Maybe you, like me, weren't alive um, for World War II, and so you only know it from the history books. But this we know. If you walk into the MTR, I think most of us are familiar with the MTR, right? You'll see posters all along the hallway, roughly every two meters apart. That's my guess. I haven't measured. And on these posters, it's everything you need to either look better, get better, or be happy with the coolest stuff or enjoy the latest entertainment, right? It's all about us. Now, I want to be clear today as we dive into God's word in Philippians chapter 2 that God has no problem with, with us enjoying the resources he's given. God has a huge problem with idolatry, where we elevate anything or anyone over himself. We learn that in the commandments. You shall have no other God before me. And so we put these pieces together, this loss of humility in culture today, this you go into work and everybody is trying to get to the highest peg, right? That's the society we have created. And there's understanding where you have to do your best. But should it come at the expense of others and the glorification of ourself? And how do we accomplish that? How do we live in a world with other people when so often it seems other people are out to get us? Well, I'd like you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And I'd like us to consider a relational apologetic. As I promised you earlier, this will not be the easiest text we've ever walked through together as a church. In fact, it may be one of the most difficult if the Holy Spirit dives in and digs into our heart. And if, as we've been told in Hebrews chapter 4, the word that is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, separates the joint from the marrow. It'll get to us. You know how I know? Verse 14 says this, immediately relatable. Do everything without complaining or arguing. We good? <laughs> I think we're done. That's good enough, right? Remember a couple of weeks ago with Pastor Dan, we talked about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and then Paul moves right in, right into as we continue to grow to be more like Jesus Christ in humility and attitudes, and he has the audacity to say, do everything without complaining or arguing. Man, so when that red taxi cut me off this morning and I tailgated him for the next two kilometers, that wasn't the appropriate response, that would be correct. I'm learning too, so please bear with me as I try to be personal today. So that, here it is, you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, and here we go. We can't blame the world because we already know it's crooked and depraved, this generation. And by the way, this generation has been every generation since Moses gave his benediction in Deuteronomy chapter 32. <laughs> the same phrase has been used over and over again. In which we in this world shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice, I'm giving everything away, not myself, giving it all away for you. In the service and sacrifice coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. 
So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That is a heavy load to carry. Do nothing with complaining or do everything without complaining. But Paul doesn't want us to think that there's not examples we can learn from. So the rest of the chapter, he continues and he looks at two guys that you might know a little bit about, but we probably don't spend a lot of time thinking about, Epaphroditus and Timothy. And here's what he says, verse 19. Follow along if you've got a Bible. If not, just listen with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I may also be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone, here we go again, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Christ Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. I want you to underline, if you've got your own Bible, and even if you're using a church Bible, underline it, it's important, that Paul says, I am confident in the Lord. He doesn't say I'm confident in myself. He doesn't say I'm confident. He says, I am confident in the Lord. But I do think it's necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, winner for the best name, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not only him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to see him, send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Lord, this is a big passage. This is where if we nod our heads with knowing our attitude should be like Jesus, we have to ask the question of, are we living like Jesus lived when he walked the earth? And so, Lord, I confess publicly to you that I am far more selfish than I'd like to admit but I pray that our hearts would be soft. I pray that we would be much more like the people of old that with somber reflection reflected on the fact that while we're here on earth, these are dark and dangerous times, but you have the victory. And so Lord, guide and direct our path toward yourself that we may be more like your son every moment of the day. Amen. We're going to dive in and we're going to review what we talked about two weeks ago. And the first thing, if, if you got a bulletin, you got some sermon notes on the back of your uh, CPR uh, little notes. And you might want to follow those along just so you can keep up because I'm going to try to cover a good amount of material without going word for word. But I want us to make sure we get the, the, the big ideas of what we can take away from this passage as we look at it in the context. Now remember, Philippians was written in a time when Rome was powerful and they were ex exerting their power over other colonies. And at this point in time, you were to say Caesar is Lord. Remember, we talked about that a couple weeks ago, that Caesar had himself 
he claimed he was a god and therefore you are to worship and honor Caesar. This is not a new thing for kings and emperors and dictators of all sorts. All the way back in the Old Testament, you read in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. Uh, others throughout scriptures, we read these patterns and not just in scripture and history all the time. You see the Egyptian idols all over the place. Kings and rulers of their times want to be worshiped. And Caesar was no different. However, if you were a part of the Roman emperor or Roman colonies all over the world, including Philippi, where many retired uh, Roman soldiers would go to live and, and, and do so comfortably, you were required to profess that Caesar is Lord. But the problem was that went in direct contradiction with the word of God that says Christ is Lord and he is in all, all through all and over all things. And so to be a follower of Jesus Christ meant you were taking on great risk because you could be persecuted to the point of death. We don't understand that completely today. We read about it in other places. We might even know of them, some that have gone through it in nations that surround us. But for most of us, we've been quite comfortable. And that idea of persecution often stops at the idea of someone insulting us because we love Jesus. Well, praise God, we can be insulted. In fact, we're told in the passage we read at the beginning, we should take joy in the sufferings uh, we've been given because they equate us with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying you're the Messiah. That is not it at all. But Christ, in great humility, suffered to the point where he told his disciples, don't worry. In those times of insult, in those times of suffering, the Holy Spirit will guide you in what to say. He will defend you. You don't defend yourselves. And so the church in Philippi was under great risk. Just proclaiming that Jesus is Lord was a dangerous, dangerous proposition. But that didn't stop them. That didn't stop Lydia, the traitor. That didn't stop the Philippian jailer. That didn't stop the demon-possessed girl that was no longer demon-possessed. That we've, we've read their stories in Acts and now we see the church growing and Paul has nothing but thankfulness for them and challenges them to grow in unity from vastly different, but to continue to proclaim in all things that Christ is Lord. And so the question for us 2,000 years later is, is he it's, it's not a complicated question. One guy, and I don't remember where I got this from, but I've been hearing it long enough in my life that it feels like it's my idea. It's not. But they call it the pillow test. What's the last or who is the last person you think of when you lay your head down to sleep? And who or what is the last thing you think of when you wake up in the morning? Right? That'll tell you a lot about the affections of your heart. Now, it's not an exact science. If you've had a very difficult day... 99% of the time, you'll be thinking of that. But how are you processing that? As you consider your day, do you turn it over to the Lord, knowing that he has promised us, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest? Or do you sit there solving it on your own? And I know it seems like the right thing to do because we like as a culture to roll up our sleeves, get dirty and figure it out ourselves, and make it so that we've got it sorted. But that's not what Jesus invites us to do with the big issues of life and the small issues of life. Uh, you, the, on the back of your sermon notes, you see, in everything by prayer and pres petition, present your requests to God. There is no request too big or too small for the Lord. He can handle it all. So the question becomes, is he Lord of every part of our life? 
And in so turning it over to him, do we let the control be his, to let him guide and direct us where he would want us to go? Or if we start to read something in the scripture that might make us feel like maybe we should do something uncomfortable, we close it and we put it away for a while. Or we avoid those conversations because they're uncomfortable. Or we're so content right now. And contentedness is a great thing. We are, in fact, we'll get there uh, within the next couple of weeks. But in this context, if Jesus Christ is Lord, we're not seeking to exalt ourselves. We're not seeking to make ourselves comfortable. And we're not seeking to find our own joy. We're instead relishing in the joy of the Lord, who is our creator, our sustainer, and our savior. We're enjoying the fact that he's in control and he's got a plan. And as rough as things get in this world, and I understand that many of you face difficulties that are far beyond my relatability, but in all those things, we can trust that Christ is Lord. And in so doing, big and small, we can turn it to him and say, Lord, Lord, here is my life. Take my life and let it be holy, consecrated, set apart for you. So that pillow test is essential to how we process the rest of this chapter. If we are working out our salvation salvation with fear and trembling, Christ is Lord over every aspect of our life. Sorry, I forgot to let you keep up. And of course, my remote's not going to work. So you'll have to pay extra close attention because the the slides aren't going to come up and that's okay. So if we think about the idea that Jesus is Lord, and that's not an idea, that's the truth. Whether we acknowledge him or not, that is our choice. But the reality is he is Lord and life lived is much better when we surrender and we say, here am I. I'll go where you want me to go. Since Jesus is Lord, as we talked about two weeks ago, we will orient our lives around kingdom priorities. And that's, again, that, that pillow test comes in. What would God be most pleased with, with my money? How would God be most glorified as I invest in my children? How is God most glorified in the work I do, even if it feels menial and small to me? How is God most glorified in my thought life? How is God most glorified in my marriage? How is God most glorified in any relationship I've got? If he's Lord, we'll let him soften us in how we deal with other people in other situations. Why? Well, we look at the cause that we find ourselves coming to. In verse 15, we are told that we are wanting to live, the goal is to live blameless, blameless and pure lives, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Now, when Paul says, as you hold out the word of life, what he's referring to there, as you carry the good news of Jesus Christ with you wherever you go, as you hold out the very life-giving word of Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again victoriously over sin, you read and remember what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what he says there, and listen up, because this should be dominating our lives. This is the cause for which we serve. We serve and we live. 
Paul says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Now that was a big deal when you wrote that in the Greek. It was, this is, in, in legal terms, this has some fancy name, I can't remember off the top of my head, but this is the top. If you're looking at an outline, this is the big, bold point. What I learned... What I received, I passed on to you as of primary first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Christ died and rose again that you and I and this world we find ourselves in might have life and have it for all eternity. The cause for which we live is Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. That, in all simplicity, is the good news of Jesus Christ. His hope, his life that we are invited into should direct every ounce of our being. We should become infected with the joy of the Lord. Because we are told in the scriptures that Christ considered it all joy to suffer for us. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In all these truths, what we realize is because of what Jesus has done and who he is, we get big life. I came that you might have life and have it to the fullest. The biggest, the most unimaginable life is ours in Christ. But we get thinking so small that we're just about ourselves, that this is all there is. And Jesus kept reminding, and by the way, if this is a struggle for you and I, you're not alone. Jesus had his disciples, and even when he was right in front of them, how many times did he say, oh, you of little faith, don't you see me? I'm right here. This is an ongoing challenge to say, Lord, my life is yours. The cause for which I live for is not my agenda, but your glory. You with me so far? Okay, good. And I like that there's some response. Then the challenge becomes, if the cause is Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, the challenge for us today in this text is to do everything without complaining or arguing. The context of the whole book is unity, serving together to bring glory to God. So that's assumed that we should work to get along because we're told later on in Peter that By this, they'll uh, actually Jesus himself says, by this, they'll know you're my disciples. If you love one another, Peter reiterates that in a slightly different way. But the idea is Christ and Paul following Christ expects us to work to get along. That's just obvious. So in doing life together as the church, capital C, we should, here we go, do everything without complaining or arguing. Wow so that we can become pure and blameless children of God in a crooked and depraved world. So before we get to the complaining part, because I know you're all just waiting to hear what I say about that, but that pure and blameless, the word, and I don't want to, I don't want to mistake anyone thinking that I'm advocating something that you personally might be uncomfortable with, But the illustration I read is a good one for us. So if you are not a drinker of alcohol, praise God. That's a great thing. But when you looked at the word innocent or pure and blameless as it's written in your Bibles, 
It was an idea of like a really good drink that was untainted by any other pollutants, a really great glass of wine. Or the, the commentator who I, I'm not going to say where he was from, but he said a really great single malt scotch. Some of you can relate to that and you understand that when a single malt scotch or a really great bottle of wine, the grapes have all come from the same vineyard at the same time and everything about it was just rich and pure and just delicious. Sorry, Coke doesn't quite mean the same thing. So I can't use that as an illustration. But you get this picture that it's untainted. It's from, if, if you take the scotch illustration, it's from the same barrel. We as followers of Jesus Christ, are from the same barrel, washed by the blood of Jesus. Again, I am not advocating or denying drinking alcohol. That is not the point of this illustration. Please don't get lost in that. The point is, when God washed us by the blood of the Lamb, we're pure, we're spotless. Our position is secure, as clean, carrying the righteousness, not of ourselves, because there's no one righteous, but the righteousness of God himself. We're pure and blameless in a depraved world. It means when we look around at the world, we don't just lament at how awful it is. Yes, things are going horribly wrong. But there's hope. And in the hope we have, we have a choice of how we respond to each other and to the world we live in. And it starts with our attitude. We can look at the world and look at our spouse, our friends, our church, our workers, our colleagues, our whatever, fill in the blank. And we can see them as created in the image of God. And we can give them the same benefit of the doubt that Jesus Christ died for, that we might all be set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Or we can do the easy thing. We can complain. We can nitpick. And remember, I struggle with this. I don't want you to think for a second that I have this all figured out. But I can point us to the scriptures and I can pray that we will learn together and that we will hold one another accountable as we seek to live out the joy and the reason for the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Okay? Because when we consider the idea of complaint, it's kind of a simple process that we don't like to admit if you follow it through. Now, this is my idea, and you can argue with me all you want, but I think it's hard to argue this point. A complaint basically starts as a lament against a perception of wrong. How many times in your life have you complained about something because you think someone else or something else is wrong? You've written, read one article in, on Facebook that told you this is the greatest thing you'll ever see without doing any background information. And we've decided then that that is wrong and therefore that's it without doing any background answers. That's why I say it's this perception of wrong. Where we often complain isn't so much that our complaints are factual, but we've decided, for instance, here you go, you ready? If I do that today, some of you in this church will think, what is he doing? He should, he's a pastor. He should have a tie on. Right? You know you're thinking it. It's okay. I have no problem wearing a tie. I'm thankful to be able to wear a tie. But we might get so caught up complaining about that that we miss the purpose of the rest of the message. Right? We do it with all sorts of things. Many of you are married. <laughs> 
And no, I'm not going to give any personal illustrations. But in marriage, you have all sorts of trade-offs. Chapman, Gary Chapman tells the story of the drawers in his house. Uh, In the marriage course, you've heard this illustration, how the drawers are constantly left open. And he realized after an awful long time of trying to teach his wife the right way to do things, it was better for him to do it himself and stop complaining. The perception of his wrongdoing didn't make up for the fact that he wasn't honoring and loving his wife. It always starts there, not always in a real injustice, but in our perception of an injustice. I was in a a small group back in our first year of marriage, and we were talking about marriage at our church, and one guy came up and told me, or was talking in our small group, and he was explaining how he realized over time that long before he'd ever talked to his wife, he had already had a full argument in his head over what she would say or complain about. And he never got a chance to speak into that. Or vice versa, she didn't get a chance to speak into that. And it's not just marriage that we do this. It's in all sorts of areas of lives. We decide that people are that way. And instead of being sons and daughters of the Most High God created in His image, we start to pick out the specks in their eyes and complain about it. And don't tell me it doesn't happen in church. Go sit at my desk for a week and you'll hear all sorts of things about people. And I love you all. Don't misunderstand, but we like to complain and so do I. It starts with a perception of wrong. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes people among us have hurt one another. But other times we've created it all ourselves and the other person has no idea what's going on. But as that perception or that wrong festers, look what happens next. It's followed by, and here we go. This isn't going to make me very popular. But it's followed by a response of entitlement. I deserve better. I want this. Or my favorite, because apparently according to my family, I have a heightened sense of justice. It's not fair. And we begin to be entitled. I want it now. It's mine. I deserve this. And you know what we're doing? We're telling anyone in our radius that life is all about me. And that I deserve all this. You know what you deserve? You know what I deserve? And I have to remember this. I really should write this on my walls. I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. Please don't misunderstand that. You cannot read this book without understanding that nothing about following Jesus is fair. And it's great because if following Jesus was as fair as we often would like it to be, we would be on our way to hell. But he who knew no sin became sin for us and paid the penalty for our sins on the cross so that we might have life and have it for all eternity and bask as co-heirs with Jesus on the same joyous level of bringing glory to God the Father and enjoying his glory for all eternity. Romans 8. It's amazing what we are invited into. So when your friend tells you they don't like your hair, you don't have to hold on to that for 800 years. Or your lack of hair, if you're more like me, I'm I'm showing. Whatever it may be. Or if your husband doesn't clean the toilet after he gets up in the middle of the night, love him anyway. If your coworker doesn't give you credit for the job they did, 
ask yourself, when's the last time I gave Jesus for the credit of what he did for me? And think, is this really that big of a deal? Or should my reputation be pegged to Jesus Christ? By the way, the answer is yes. Your reputation should be pegged to Jesus Christ, not yourself. But that's hard. I know that. And you know why it's hard? Because I am awesome. Because ultimately what complaint leads to is a sense of entitlement followed by idolatry of ourselves. It's not fair. I want it now. I want this. I should be comfortable. This should be easy. We're an international church, so most of you hold passports from other places. Why isn't it like my home country? Well, good news. Our citizenship is in heaven, so who cares? I know that's very insensitive of me to say, but I'm in an insensitive mood today. God has placed us here in Hong Kong for such a time as this, and we're invited to bloom where we're planted. Who knows? God might have you here for such a time as this. Esther was a slave. We can survive by living in Hong Kong, even though the heat is oppressive and there's more people here than should ever be squeezed into one small area. I get that. But while we're here, we can live with great joy that these are some of the nicest people in the entire world that need the love of Christ. And we can show that. But you know how we don't show it? By complaining about everything. You tell me one person you've led to Jesus by complaining and I'll buy you a steak dinner at Morton's. I'm pretty confident on that deal that nobody's going to be able to prove that to me, so don't hold me to it. But see, the thing is, when we complain, we make it about us. And I want you to know that, I'm, as I, like I said, this has been a very difficult message to prepare because I've had to look myself in the eye and I've had to have the word of God separate the joint from the marrow and realize it is so easy to complain. It is so easy to want my way over sacrificially loving my spouse, my children, my coworkers, my church family, my family in America, whatever. You fill in your own blanks. But we are invited to a life that's bigger than us, a life that's full of seeking the glory of another, that in so doing gives us full lives that are more than we could imagine. You know what I've never read in all the missionary biographies I've ever read of people that when they gave their life for Christ and served him in all sorts of areas, like I told Awana yesterday about Amy Carmichael. I've not read of Amy Carmichael, uh, Corey Ten Boom, Hudson Taylor, or the list goes on, uh, Tyndale and many others. I've never read any of them saying, man, I wish I just sat back and got rich. I've never read of a missionary regretting at the end of the day, giving their all to Christ and letting him guide every ounce of their life. But for us, we fight for comfort and we complain when we don't get it. So it comes back to the pillow test. Who is Lord of our life? Is our comfort, is our way Lord of our life? Or is Christ Jesus our true Lord and Savior? You see, what happens when we, when we become complainers, even if we don't say it out loud, if it's in our heart, and we're going to talk about that next, it, it creates in us a defense mechanism. You know what a defense mechanism is? A defense mechanism, think of porcupine. We have them in Saikung, and we've, they're mythical creatures. We don't see them very often. But they're these beautiful things, unless they're scared. If they're scared, run. Because when 
a porcupine perceives someone is out to hurt them. Remember, perceives a porcupine, those quills that look so pretty and cool become suddenly very painful because they're designed in just such an amazing way that when they go in, they don't come out because they've got a little hook on the end. And so that to pull them out is quite difficult and uncomfortable. Their defense mechanism against people attacking or anything attacking, the perception of a threat is they fight back. They defend. You know what? My natural tendency? To fight back. To defend against those that I perceive as not wanting my glory. Call it whatever you will. Injustice, all these other things. But ultimately it's people taking away glory from me. And I get defensive. But if my attitude was the same as that of Christ Jesus, I would be celebrating the victory of others, the victory of God at work in life, rather than criticizing for all the things people didn't do the way I would have done them. (laughs) And we'd get a whole different look. I'm not saying it's easy to shift. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to do it. But there is a cure for a complaining heart. And Jesus talked about it. He, he speaks of it in Matthew. Uh, Luke also writes about it. And you see that in your text. The cure for a complaining heart or a complaining mouth, it's pretty simple. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are we putting in our hearts We're told throughout scriptures, thy words have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So let's start there. How much time are we spending digging into his word? How much time are we letting his word, not just just my favorite kind of devotional method. Those who had been scattered preach the word wherever they, oh, that's a good one. Actually, that's very good for today. But we just hope for the best, whatever. Now, God can still work that way. Don't misunderstand. But we are invited to let the word of God just stretch us, cut us to shreds so that when it's all said and done, nothing is left but him. We are invited to let the word of God so shape us that as the Holy Spirit teaches us and convicts us of sin, what we are promised he does in his word, that we can't help but going away different than we came in. And therefore, our responses to others are not our own, but they're Christ in us, the hope of glory. It shifts naturally. As we spend more time with someone, we become like them, right? You see it in dating couples in Hong Kong because the more time they spend together, they start to dress alike. Have you noticed that? They'll wear the same t-shirts. They'll wear the same shoes. They'll do these things because they're spending time together. They're so in love and it's beautiful. But for us as believers in Jesus Christ, our ultimate aim is to be like Jesus. But the great thing is we can't do it on our own. We need help. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Jesus. And so he says, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What are we putting in our hearts? Who are we trusting with life? What are we doing to bring glory to God? And Paul doesn't want us to think, well, you know, here's the deal, guys. Jesus, fully God, he's a tough guy to stack up to. And I've heard people say this, well, Jesus was fully God, so I can't be like him. You're right. I get that. Really bad logic, but I get it. 
But then Paul gives us two other examples that are not Jesus. They're fully man and that's it. But they're washed by the blood of the lamb. And look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. Just real briefly, look at what we learn about Timothy. He was a proven worker. If you've learned anything of Paul, here's what we know about this guy, Paul. That guy would work to the bone to get the job done. When Christ called him, there was no turning back. The rest of Paul's life, every ounce of his being was dedicating to carrying the gospel of Christ. And if you failed him early on, he didn't have time for you. Remember, that's what ultimately caused the split of Paul and Barnabas because Barnabas wanted to bring along another saint, but that guy had left him once and Paul was like, no. But even Paul learned that later on, (laughs) there's grace and we continue to learn. But with Timothy, he doesn't say any of that. He says, this guy is a proven worker. You read the letter to first, the two letters to Timothy, and you sense that Paul is trying to impart on him every wisdom he can as his own son. He trusts him. He loves him. And we know that Timothy was a true son in the faith from great stock. His grandmother and his mother loved the Lord, and he trusted that. But what really sticks out And this goes back to how we carry ourselves in life is what you see next in your little chart. That Timothy's concern was for Christ and for others. Look at what Philippians says. And just listen to these words. I have no one else like him, Timothy, who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But the inference there is, but Timothy looks out for your interests and for the interests of Christ. My hope and prayer is that my family and I are part of this church for a long time. I'm not predicting what God has for us. That's up to him. I've given up trying to figure that out. But I hope that someday toward the end of my life, I'm writing a letter about AIC where this is what I say. I love the people of AIC because their interests were not their own, but they were caring for each other and they were caring about the interests of Jesus Christ and him glorified. Wow. You want to know what our hearts say? Think about that. Bringing glory and honoring other people. Well, okay, well, let's think about Epaphroditus because again, Timothy, all-star preacher, you know, let's, uh, I could never be like him. Well, maybe we should try in the Holy Spirit trusting him. But Epaphroditus, just listen to the descriptions of this guy. He was a brother. Paul considered him family. He said a brother in Christ. Great. A fellow worker. When Paul uses the word worker, he means servant. This guy would give, again, just like Paul valued, someone that would serve at the expense of themselves to bring glory to God and make Christ known. Interestingly, also a soldier. Remember, we are in a battle. Spiritual warfare is all all around us and we must persevere. Wars are fought over all time where people are fighting for one bigger than themselves. Secular wars, religious wars, they're all the same. They're always fighting. The soldiers themselves have very little personal stake unless they're fighting for land. They're fighting for their general, their president, their king, their monarch, their emperor. In the same way, we in Christ are called to fight the good fight of the faith. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities of darkness. And we are called to fight that with perseverance and with long-suffering patience, not complaint. And Epaphroditus nearly died while he was with Paul. 
But even in so doing, he was called a messenger. And here's the thing I love, because this is, this, the church can make one another feel bad if we don't quite do ministry the way we think it should be. But Epaphroditus is called a, mes- a messenger here, taking the good news of Jesus Christ where the rest of the church in Philippi couldn't. Often we'll talk missions or I'll invite you to consider going on a short-term, long-term or career missions opportunity. And some of you say, I would love to do that, but there's just no way right now or I don't feel that's where God has me. That's okay. You know what we need from you? First and foremost, prayer. But secondly, how was Epaphroditus able to go be with Paul? And I know you're not all going to be comfortable with this again, but because the church was faithful in stewardship. The church gave so that those that were equipped and called could go to where God had called them. Epaphroditus, that meant he sent them with Paul. The church in Philippi, and they're known throughout. In in 1 Corinthians, we read of the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. That's referring back to Philippi. They were faithful with what God had given them. So when I talk about budget at AIC, I would love for us to look at budgeting like that. How many can we send out and send into Hong Kong to make disciples of nations both locally and abroad? Not as we've just got to make sure there's a line item on a budget. That's missing the point. The joy of generosity comes in the joyfulness of partnering with those whom God is using all over the world. Don't mistake that when you think about giving of your 10% or whatever God has led you to give. In the church in Philippi, Paul is exhorting them, and he'll do it again later on in the book to do that. Epaphroditus was a messenger that was sent by the church to carry the good news of Jesus Christ. Whom can we send and whom can we support? Those are questions for us, the local church. So you put all this together, and there's a lot to it. But the conclusion is simple. In our own strength, I will complain. I promise you. But if I have been crucified to myself, if I am dead to self and alive in Christ, it is I who no longer live, but Christ in me who lives. So the conclusion for us is simple. We want to live the way Paul is inviting us to that seems so impossible. And I know there are factors beyond, but when you look at the word of God, there's this invitation to live by the spirit, Romans 8 that we read at the beginning of the service. And in so doing, we can love others as we surrender ourselves to not wanting our way, but God's glory. It really is that simple. Would we do that today? Would we say, Lord, I don't want to defend myself in what I want. I don't want to get caught up in foolish and petty arguments. I want to trust you. And I want to see people, as we've been talking about throughout Philippians, the way Christ saw me. And I want to live that way. We can't do it on our own. But if we depend on the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through study of his word, and through letting him direct our paths, you'll be amazed. The joy will be rich. It will be deep. It won't be easy. But it'll be the life Jesus has called us to, a life of fullness in him. Let's pray. Lord, it is very easy for me to pick out everything wrong in the world. 
that you picked, up every, picked out everything wrong in the world, namely sin, and you gave yourself up for us who are sinners. And so, God, I ask today that I would see the world through your lens, that I would be dead to myself, but alive in you, that we would be able to celebrate your victories, your glory, and not our own. And may we do it without complaining, but rather with full service focused on you. We love you, Lord. Amen.